Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Jim Coonan. I'm a member of the Carpenters Local 314, Carpenters and Joiners of America. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all great programming award possible. Hi there, I'm Anna Ham, and while I've never been a member of a trade union, I did go out with a sheet metal worker. I found him riveting. This week, we get the latest on fair maps in Wisconsin, hear from MTI on Madison Public Schools' delayed return, discuss changes, OSHA's COVID regulations in the workplace, learn about changes to UW compensation, and share the latest COVID report plus much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining member of WORT and Labor Radio. Many Madison parents and students were notified the start of the new year would be online based on the upsurge in COVID cases. In-person learning starts back up on Monday, January 10th. Madison Teachers, Inc.'s Teachers Unit President, Michael Jones, excuse me, pardon me, discussed the union's work in gaining community support for safe schools and the labor radio reporter, Ellen LaLuzerne. The school district decided to delay the start of this school year after winter break. Can you talk about that? The Omicron variant has been impacting everyone. When we surveyed our members, roughly two-thirds of them said either they didn't want to return to school on the 10th, rather stay virtual, or they would only do so if the infection rates were stabilizing or decreasing. But unfortunately, the rates are continuing to rise. We struggled with balancing our real belief in-person learning is the best way to do it, but also the safety and health of everyone. We will be going back into the buildings. There won't be any job actions or refusal. With so many people getting sick, there's been a reported lack of substitutes. Can you elaborate on that? That's been a huge issue for this entire school year is the lack of subs. Workers at all capacities, bus drivers, food service workers, custodians, security, clerical, educational assistants, not just one work group that we are short on. And that's because of, honestly, years of neglect and gaslighting by leadership. In the past, it might have been district leadership, but also a lot of state and national leaders. There's been a lot of neglect and rather abuse of the education system. So it's not a surprise that we don't have enough subs. When you don't have enough subs, you literally cannot operate a school. It's been a struggle even before the Omicron variant has spread. And now we know we're going to have fewer workers across all levels. And the expectation cannot be that like things are going to just be hunky-dory. In light of some of these issues, I know that the union's been trying to work with the administration on resolving some of these things. Can you highlight some of those issues and what you're doing? First off is a discussion of a COVID relief strategy for days. So last spring, when we went back to in-person, the federal government provided funds so that if someone had to quarantine, it wouldn't get out of their sick time. 
since September 22nd, that protection hasn't been there because the federal funds aren't there. So anytime you've had to quarantine, what it led to is pretty much the sick bank being drained. We've been trying to really alert the district of this since late spring. As we start school on Monday, we're going to have people who are going to have to make a lot of tough choices. We do not want to put people in that position. Our second demand is that we are really emphasizing how serious it is in terms of following COVID mitigation strategies. But if you're not masking and you're not masking successfully, that really endangers the public health the health of everyone in the school. Whether we're talking about an employee or an adult in the building or a student, we need to make sure we are dealing with it because I think we got a little lax between September and and December with mitigation pre-Omicron. And we need to make sure we are following the science with fidelity and not just worrying about the optics or or the politics behind it. Our third demand is let's actually take some time to focus on social emotional health. The idea is that we get back in and we pretend like nothing's happened and let's just get back to reading our books and doing our math as though like people aren't going through a huge amount of trauma. So we just want the district to be very explicit that we're going to give people chance to breathe. We can make sure we're meeting the needs of the kids because they're struggling. Also, uh, what are we doing to plan as a community for the next variant? Omicron's not the last variant. How are we bringing parents, but especially parents of color into this conversation? And also, what are we doing to bring our students in on this planning so that we can say when the next wave happens, we know this is how we're going to move. And we need to make sure it's transparent. So as many people as possible know, this is what the score is. Can you talk about the petition that MTI just began circulating to try to help resolve these issues? What we really want to show is when we bring these frustrations forward or when we bring up these ideas, these didn't just come out of my head or out of a select group. This is a community need. We're hoping that the petition will show it's not just us. It is parents, it is students, it is union members and also non-union members. There's a lot of people who are really fed up, but like, what can we do to make sure that we aren't always in this cycle of trauma and anger. Um, What can we do to break that cycle? And we think of the petition would be the best way to bring that. That was MTI's teacher unit president, Michael Jones. If you want more information or to find a copy of the petition, go to madisonteachers.org. I'm Ellen LaLazern for Labor Radio. OSHA recently loosened COVID-related emergency workplace safety regulations. Organized labor and a local doctor are not happy. Greg Jabowski reports. In the quiet of the holiday week at the end of December, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, allowed its emergency workplace standards put in place in June because of the COVID-19 pandemic to lapse, with no indication at the time that they will be reinstated. In a major break with the Joe Biden administration, organized labor immediately fought back. On Tuesday, the largest federal employees union, the American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, demanded not only reinstatement of the standards, but its expansion to all frontline workers. The existing standard covered only workplaces of 100 or more people, for example. Unions took OSHA to court, and hearings were to be held today. The pressure seems to have yielded results, as on Wednesday this week, OSHA reinstated emergency but not permanent infectious disease standards. But organized labor is still going ahead with its demands to expand workplace COVID protections. Labor Radio spoke today to Dr. Richard McGowan, a local physician who treats COVID patients who is not pleased with the federal government's shaky response. 
I feel like the federal response hasn't been appropriate or commensurate with the number of cases that we've seen increase. We've seen nationally earlier this week, there were a million COVID cases in a day or just under a million. In Dane County, we set a record, I believe, Wednesday. We had 2,000 cases just here, and we're seeing close to that daily for the duration of the week here. To McGowan, the need for federal workplace standards is obvious. The revocation of uh, emergency temporary standard guiding COVID safety guidelines in healthcare settings and other workplaces with 100 more employees by OSHA. And then also later on that week, the revised isolation guidelines, which changed the number of days an infected person needs to stay home from 10 days to five days for the general public and from 10 days to seven days for healthcare workers. Doesn't seem to, to be appropriate. Uh, especially tied with uh, what's going on with the Omicron surge, which we're still slated to see over the course of this month, and hopefully we'll start to see some signs of it slowing down soon. McGowan explains what the OSHA standards entail. What I would rather see is the same as what National Nurses United and 40 other unions, including some healthcare unions, would like to see. What they're looking for is putting the emergency temporary standard back into place, and this is the standard that governs the amount of testing that a healthcare employer does, mandatory case reporting, minimum PPE standards, paid time off for employees that get sick, healthcare workers that get sick. We'd like to see that put back into place immediately. Even if the standards are going back in place, there never should be a gap given the health emergency, says McGowan. It was slated to expire after six months, but over that six-month interim, OSHA should have come up with a, a more permanent federal standard so that we don't have any gap. I don't see a gap in enforceable regulations acceptable during this pandemic in the state that our country is in. McGowan is with organized labor not only demanding reinstatement, but expansion and clear guidelines for the OSHA standards. We'd like to see the temporary standard put back into place and then a very soon a more permanent or semi-permanent safety guidelines actually published and enforceable because until then, every hospital, every clinic, every healthcare institution is liable to govern however they see fit. And we need these federal guidelines to protect our frontline workers. Dr. McGowan also has this advice for all listeners. Next thing I would add is that if you haven't been vaccinated yet, please get vaccinated. It's the most effective measure you can take as an individual to stay safe from COVID, continue to mask, and comply with the local public health measures that are coming out of Dane County. Thank everybody for their patience living through this pandemic. That was Dr. Richard McGowan, a local physician who treats COVID patients and who supports organized labor in its call for continuous and clear workplace safety standards during the pandemic. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. At last, the building trades workers at the UW and statewide buildings got their pay raise, although they only started it from July 1, so they still screwed us out of six months. In late December, the Joker Joint Committee on Employee Relations voted to increase pay for building trades workers covered by their union contracts and employed by the University of Wisconsin. The vote comes after almost two years of delay by Joker. Initially, the trades reached a tentative agreement with the university in 2021. Labor spoke with Jacqueline Weitzel, executive director of the South Central Building Trades Council, about the process, the pay increase, and what comes next. Could Joker have acted sooner? Absolutely. 
It turns out that this happens every year. So the Joker Committee just decides when they want to meet, and it ends up being about every two years. So you actually reached this tentative agreement with the university sometime early in 2021 then, is that correct? Yes. What made Joker act now? We had a lot of our members calling and reaching out to them, asking them, you know, when they were going to meet. We had a couple of articles that we put out in the paper, just kind of describing what the situation is up there. It's been, we were waiting for Joker to approve not just one contract, but two for this last year's contract and the one before. So I think just kind of put a lot of pressure on them to meet. And I think it was a win for us to get them to meet before the end of this year. The agreement called for a 1.81% raise effective on February 3rd, 2021, as well as a 1.23% increase effective January 1st, 2022. Workers will receive retroactive pay. However, joker resolutions must be approved by the Assembly and Senate, something the trades expect to occur shortly. Unions must recertify each year and contracts must be renegotiated each year pursuant to Act 10. The process is beginning all over again now with negotiations scheduled to start later this spring. Wetzel described what the trades are looking for next year. We are only allowed to bargain to the CPI. For next year, it's looking around 4% that we can bargain to, a little over that. So I guess we'll just see when all the numbers uh, come out for what the July increase is. A 4% increase is quite large as compared to the past. How do you think the trades will achieve their goal? For the many years since Act 10 happened, our increases for our wages have gone down tremendously. And some years, like the the state approved a 2% raise for everybody else, and we only get 1.23. So some years we're behind what the other uh, workers in the state make. So I think framing it that way, we're making it up, making up the difference from the years that we have gotten a way less percentage raise than all the other workers in the state. Do you think that the fact that it's harder and harder to recruit for the campus will have some impact on their thinking? Yeah. Our state workers are really behind what they're making in the private sector. So it is getting harder and harder to recruit people, especially during this time, during the pandemic, when we've had such a worker shortage that, you know, people are either leaving their jobs at the state to come work in the private sector or just not applying at all. You know, there was a time where there was a line out the door to get a state job. They just don't have the same numbers applying for the jobs anymore. And I I can only uh, foresee that continuing. That was Jacqueline Weitzel, Executive Director, South Central Building Trades Council. I am Frank Emsbach for Labor Radio. Some academic staff and hourly employees at UW-Madison are appealing their new salaries and job titles as the university implements a new job title and compensation system. On November 7th, all hourly and academic staff employed by UW-Madison received their new job title and were asked to sign off on them. One problem, the salaries were not included. The November 7th rollout was the culmination of a three-year project by UW administration. As they put it, quote, UW-Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Wisconsin system are engaged in a redesign of job title and compensation structures. The title and total compensation project will result in relevant and market-informed titles to help us keep and grow our outstanding workforce, end quote. All told, more than 1,800 job titles across all campuses are being reviewed. The Madison campus has about 13 job titles assigned. Labor Radio spoke with Pete Haney, university staff and president of AFSCME Local 2412, 
And Jason Lee, academic staff and co-president of United Faculty and academic staff to get their take on the project. This week, we will focus on their overall assessment and the process issues. Over the next few weeks, we will discuss pay issues, job descriptions, and the appeal system. Pete and Jason, what is your overall assessment of the project so far? Jason Lee will be followed by Pete Haney. The impact of this process has been one to let staff know where the university sees them and to do so based on market-based data that may or may not apply to what actually people are doing. And the, the result has been a really demoralizing and frustrating experience for people who feel like they've been doing a really good job for a long time and has increased uncertainty about people's futures within the university. In my eight years or so at UFAS, I haven't heard from so many employees on campus who are discouraged and upset about one particular project as I have since the implementation of TTC. Pete, what's up with the people you represent? I'm hearing a lot of the same thing that Jason is hearing. Some people are happy, either because they're happy with the title that they were assigned or because, you know, they were assigned to a salary range that led to them getting a slight raise. You know, the people I talk to who are happy are generally people who have good relations with supervisors, people who have more strained relationships with supervisors or are maybe in larger outfits and maybe a little more distant from their supervisors. You know, I'm hearing people feel like they don't see a clear path forward. We all had to accept job titles, not knowing what the salary ranges for those would be. Have individual salaries been reduced? Nobody got a pay cut, but I am hearing from people who don't necessarily feel like they see a path forward within their job type. Haney and Lee emphasized that essentially the university tried to build a system by negotiating with one person at a time, but the individuals did not know the salary range of their jobs. As Jason Lee put it, That was an issue that folks had raised since the beginning of this process three or four years ago, and that being a major concern of most people not knowing the salary range because it influences your potential for growth within a job. It provides potential inequitable sort of salary structure for people across campus doing similar work. However, the university refused to provide this information. The UFAS filed an open records request earlier earlier in the fall to get the salary structure and data. The UW denied the request, but after the job title report was released on November 7th, the open records request was granted. This information will allow unions and individuals to compare old titles and new titles, see the salary range, and ultimately evaluate any sex, age, or race bias in the system. It was only at this point, late November, early December, could individuals evaluate their position in the new structure. As Jason explains, and then at that time, then you saw they were only giving folks like three weeks for an appeal process, which put a lot of strain, not only on the workers, but frankly, also on the supervisors in the department and the local HR reps in their departments. University and academic staff pushed back, and now employees may submit a formal appeal to a supervisor and or divisional human resource representative until February 4th. Next time, Labor Radio will take up pay and job discrimination issues and job classification issues. The title and total compensation information is on the UW's website. The expanded data on salary ranges for specific classifications is available from UFAS. Listeners are urged to get in touch with Ask Me Local 2412 and United Faculty and Academic Staff to review their employment situation and get advice as to how to appeal. Thank you very much to Jason and Pete. And I'm Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio.
numerous, excuse me, uh, here's an update on Wisconsin's legislative maps from the uh, communication director at the Fair Elections Project. Jacob Malinowski, the communications director at the Fair Elections Project, updates listeners on Wisconsin's legislative maps. When we left off, I think at the beginning of November, December, we had just heard that the state Supreme Court decided to use a least changes framework to analyze maps submitted for the redistricting cycle. This sort of least changes framework is something they made up this year at the request of the Republican Party leadership. It has no basis in Wisconsin law or or state statute. And because of this, you know, everyone was sort of forced to play by these rules. A couple of different parties submitted maps through what they would call the least changes framework uh, to the state Supreme Court. Most folks probably heard that the governor's team submitted maps. There were other parties that also submitted maps that both, you know, comply with this framework as well as look a lot more fair than what the legislature has offered up. So those Those maps were submitted. They're now being looked at and reviewed, and we should get more legal updates as we go into January, February, and March. There are still elections that have to be held under these maps, both in the spring and the fall of 2022. And then there's a state Supreme Court race in 2023, where one of the justices, you know, who ruled against fair maps will be up for re-election. So this fight is not over, and that's why we're continuing to stay engaged. Thank you, Jacob. Could you please tell our listeners where they could go for more information on Fair Maps in Wisconsin? Fairmapswi.com is the best place to get engaged. Speaking of which, we're having rallies around the state at state courthouses to really bring awareness uh, to this issue of fair courts and ending gerrymandering. Those rallies are happening on the 21st of January at noon, and you can learn all about that at our website, fairmapswi.com. That was Jacob Malinowski from the Fair Elections Project. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Collectivo workers are facing the new year with a challenge to their union. Labor Radio reporter Ellen LaLuzerne reports. Collectivo Coffee Roasters, the company, is asking the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, to review the results of the vote by workers to unionize. In April last year, the vote ended in a tie. After review by the NLRB, Votes that had been set aside as challenged were opened and counted. This resulted in a 106-99 to yes vote for the union. The company claims improper ballot solicitation and tampering occurred during the vote. The union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW Local 494 business manager, Dean Warsh, responded saying the review showed it was a fair election result and this, quote, is just another delay and obstructive tactic to slow down and stop the will of their workers to form a union, unquote. We hope to have more about this story next week. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Baristas at Starbucks Coffee in Buffalo, New York, have won their union election, a first among business corporate locations. Now other stores are following their lead. Labor Radio's Sean Hangerup reports. Starbucks Coffee officially has its first unionized company-owned U.S. store in Buffalo, New York, 
and the successful campaign is inspiring baristas across the country to organize their own stores. The Elmwood location in Buffalo was one of three that were voting on a unionization drive early last month. Of the three, it is the only store to have its victory certified, but challenge votes at the other two have yet to be officially reviewed by the NLRB. At a second location, yes votes were leading 15 to 9, with a total of seven challenged ballots. The unionization vote failed to pass at the third location by a vote of 12 to 8, though a lawyer for the union indicated a possible future challenge over votes he says were not counted. In the wake of the election certification at the Elmwood store, workers at three more Buffalo locations have filed paperwork to hold their own votes. The NLRB is currently reviewing workers' petitions for elections and testimony from recent hearings before it will make a decision on holding elections according to the city's WIBV News 4. Beyond the Buffalo city limits, Starbucks locations across the country have seized the initiative to join their own unions. Election filings at corporate branches in Knoxville, Tennessee, Chicago, Illinois, Broomfield, Colorado, Mesa, Arizona, Seattle, Washington, and Boston, Massachusetts have all taken place since the beginning of Buffalo's voting period in November, with most filings taking place after the results became public in early December. Overwhelmingly, Workers at these locations see their petition for a union as an articulation of their power as partners under Starbucks's corporate governance structure. Quote, we do not see our desire to unionize as a reaction to specific policies, events, or changes, but rather a commitment to growing the company and the quality of our work. We see unionizing as a fundamental and necessary way to participate in Starbucks and its future as partners, end quote. Four organizing workers in Seattle wrote in a public letter to CEO Kevin Johnson, Another public letter, this time from the Colorado branch, cites the other union campaigns as inspiration. Quote, as our fellow partners in Buffalo, Boston, Knoxville, Seattle, Mesa, and more have demonstrated, we believe that there is no true partnership without the sharing of power, influence, accountability, and success. End quote. Workers at the Buffalo Starbucks location that had their election certified by the NLRB have already put their union power to use staging a walkout this week as a result of worries over health and staffing. These workers cite the exploding number of COVID cases in their area, as well as an increase in worker burnout as major factors in calling for the company to institute temporary store closures while their concerns are fully addressed. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. This week's COVID report includes an alarming level of transmission. In Wisconsin, COVID transmission is high throughout the entire state. The number of available hospital beds is shrinking. More than 91% of hospital beds are in use and 94% of intensive care units are filled. Public Health Madison and Dane County releases information about COVID cases each Thursday. This week's information comes with a cautionary note about the data limitations. The department noted that due to a record-breaking number of cases over the past two weeks, not all recent cases have been fully processed into the system. As a result, certain data points, such as vaccination status, are not yet available for those cases. Despite the underreporting, the data reveals that the number of cases increased during this 14-day period ending Sunday, January 3rd. Tests revealed an average of 695 cases per day. 1.8% of the entire Dane County population tested positive with a PCR test during this 14-day period. People hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals also increased, with an average of 136 people hospitalized each day. Percent positivity is at its highest ever level at 14.3%, with an average of 4,799 tests per day. 
COVID testing is available at the Alliant Energy Center at the Public Health Clinic on South Park and other sites in Dane County and surrounding areas. Public Health recommends making an appointment. At today's briefing at the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, Dr. Bill Moss addressed vaccine mandates and the pushback to oppose them. We're going to continue to face challenges with misinformation, disinformation, controversy of vaccine mandates. As we're talking now, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments to challenge President Biden's attempts to impose vaccine mandates on large employers, those with more than 100 employees, as well as healthcare workers who participate in Medicare and Medicaid programs. So we're going to continue to see this debate that may sometimes get acrimonious around vaccine mandates. The CDC announced Wednesday that adolescents aged 12 to 17 should receive a booster shot five months after their initial Pfizer vaccine series. At this time, only the Pfizer vaccine is authorized and recommended for adolescents aged 12 to 17. Everyone aged 5 and over is eligible for a vaccine in Wisconsin. The nearest vaccine site can be found at this website, vaccines.gov. That's V-A-C-C-I-N-E-S dot G-O-V. Sources of information for this story include Public Health Madison in Dane County, the Centers for Disease Control, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. For Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel reporting. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Jim Coonan. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach, Ellen LaLuzerne, Assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hangerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough, Jeannie Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Wydell, and Damage Control Specialist, our favorite, Joanne Powers. A special thanks to Keith Steffens, our reader coordinator, and to all readers and listeners and members of the IBEW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And uh, I'm Anna Ham, or Anna Ham. We'd also like to thank all of the generous (laughs) (laughs) generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please, stay tuned for Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. Party.